if when there's questions about like familial medical history, that's hard for a lot of people, but it tends to be very hard for black Americans descended from African uh, enslaved Africans. I have two master's degrees. I have two licenses. Uh, I have two certifications. I'm getting a PhD, but I, I, I make an intentional point to be an everyday person. If this white clinician was able to be a, a wonderfully culturally competent counselor and see me and recognize me and give me a level of affirmation that I've never had. And that, and all of that was really powerful and meaningful to me. She says, you know, Wes, you, you, you've been through a lot. And you know what, I, um, I never had anyone say that to me. Welcome to the Autistic Advantage podcast, where we discuss the remarkable abilities of brains built with these unique neurological traits. I'm your host, Olivia Fox, and in today's episode, we're chatting with Wesley Wade, founder of Forward Counseling and Consulting, licensed clinical mental health counselor, and a very neurodivergent PhD candidate. Welcome, Wesley. Let's first start about when and how you found out that you were autistic. How old were you? How did it happen? <laughs> you know, th this is um, hmm, this is a very interesting question for me at this point in time in my life because I know that I am neurodivergent without a fact, right? I, I like I know this. And I've had an inkling about this for a while, uh, since I was a kid. I noticed that I thought very differently than the people around, or at that point in time, I didn't realize that I was thinking differently. I thought everyone thought like that, but I did notice there were these moments where I could see connections, where I could see patterns that other people couldn't. Going through my life, as I increased in awareness because of the people around me and them getting diagnosed, even, uh, you know, family members and friends that like, okay, this is probably me, but I was really focused on ADHD at first. Right. And like, this is ADHD. And then, um, later, um, in my thirties, we're like, okay, it's probably dyslexia too. And then honestly, just getting an actual real diagnosis because I needed the power that that, that diagnosis can give you. Cause I was never able to get one. Didn't even get one until 2020, just because I didn't need it. I was like, okay, well, well I didn't think that I needed it. <laughs> it was getting that diagnosis, even as a mental health clinician, I realized, oh, I actually do need this. There is so much more insight this gave me. But in the past few years, with all the all the stuff that's been going on in the world, like pandemic, you know, wars, attacks, you know, but, uh, political stuff, racism, you know, coming out in a way that it hasn't looked like in a while, right? Like just in different ways, all this stuff going on. It's been issues and it's been coping mechanisms and it's been isolation. And I've also been freeing myself of a lot of, I'm going on the ADHD ramble here, but there's a point to this, but I'm going on, um, I'm, I'm, I'm freeing myself at the same time. So as I started doing these things, spending more time at home, spending less time in the office, working remote, and then eventually leaving full-time work altogether and dedicating all of my time to my own business, I'm like really becoming my natural, authentic self again. And I'm like, you know what? Um, 
I'm 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 pretty sure I'm autistic, right? So it it really hasn't been that long that I've I've I'm, and I'm still working on accepting that. It's not because I have a problem with it, right? Like I do think that there is an issue that a lot of ADHD folks see autism as this you know, worse thing. And it's not, right? It's all neurodivergence. It's not better or worse. It's just a different condition of our brains, right? There's also the thing of, I want to be respectful because I don't want to just willy-nilly say, ah, I'm autistic without really like thinking about it really deeply, right? Which is, which is a very autistic thing. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to commit to saying something until I have spent the appropriate time going through the ruminations yeah. and mechanisms right. in my head. Yes, right? And so I am... Like, I think the, the first person in my family that I realized was autistic was probably my maternal grandfather, who passed away in the early 90s, okay? This man, was, everyone knew he was brilliant. He grew up uh, in, you know, uh, Anne Arundel County in Maryland, here in the U.S., he um, he was in his early 80s when he passed. Uh, I think it was around 92, 94. No, my brother was born in 92. So this was around 94. So my brother was like two or four. So it was like 94, 96. And so he passed then. He was in, he was in his early 80s. So this is a man who has experienced a lot, right? You just think about history, racism, all these things, right? He has experienced a lot. He went to school during segregation, and like what I was told was he was so smart that they started sending him to school to Baltimore City because they lived out in the country at that point, right? And so he was just like really smart. At that day and age uh, in Maryland, this is what I've been told from older relatives, if your family had any resources to send children to school, you sent the daughters to school. Because the daughters usually had to take jobs in white people's homes, and that means they were up for, um, uh, you know, uh, target. They were up to be targets of the white men who ran those homes, like of the husbands and fathers. And so, black parents were like, "We don't want our girls being mixed up in that." So you would send your daughters to college. So, like, my paternal grandmother has a college education, right? And she died uh, in 2022, but she had a college degree. Her sister, my Aunt Viv, my great-aunt Viv, who was 99 when she passed in 2021, she had a master's degree in chemistry, right? Like, I'm a third-generation college student. That's not common for a lot of Black Americans. Um, so, like, this man didn't get to go to college, right? All this racism. There's not a lot of opportunities, but he was super smart. He was one of the first people to work for NASA. He ran the machine shop at the Goddard Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. We have this certificate from him retiring from there and everything. Like, not only was he one of the first people to work for, like, first black people to work for NASA, he was one of the first people at the Goddard Flight Center in Greenbelt. This was, like, in the 50s. Was, um, so he was very clearly neurodivergent and autistic. Like, when I look back at it, when I started learning more about this, like, oh, he's clearly that. Then I was like, oh, well, my mom probably is too. And then I know I'm just like my mom. <laughs> so, and then like, you know, you have kids and you start watching your kids and this is literally the work that I'm doing. So I'm, I'm, I'm immersed in it and I'm reading everything and I'm like, okay, I think I, I think this is, <laughs> I think this is, this is, this is, this is, this is me. What? You mentioned power. What power did the diagnosis give you and what changed post-diagnosis? Hmm. That's a good question because 
I was of the belief that I did not need a diagnosis prior to me right. getting one. And I was already a, lic- a fully licensed clinical mental health counselor and licensed clinical addiction specialist. So this was not information I was unaware of. I was like, okay, you know, I know what goes into a diagnosis, yada, 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 all this. And di- but by the way, I need to make a note here. Diagnosis does not look the same across the board. Like diagnosis is a, vi- the, the act of diagnosing someone is a very subjective process. It can look very different from clinician to clinician. Um, whether that's the field that they're in, their personal backgrounds, their education, like it's just, it's, it's a subjective process. Like the, mental health is not math, you know, it's not, um, it's not physical health either. I mean, it, it is part of your physical health, but you think of cancer. I can go get a screening where it can be clear that, you know, I have cancer or someone has cancer. Hopefully that's not the case, right? But like you can get a screen, you can get a biopsy, you can get MRI, you can get things that say you have cancer. There is nothing, there is no like blood test to say you're dyslexic, autistic, ADHD, whatever it is, right? These are things that not they're, they're yet. social you creations. I mean, they're real, but they're social creations too, right? And so you have to understand too that the act of diagnosis is very subjective. And when something is very subjective, it is um, at the whim of the powers within that society where it exists, right? And so the powers in our society are capitalistic, are white supremacist, are patriarchal, right? And so those are the powers that I wasn't, I should have right, been more aware of because I know these things, but I wasn't thinking about like the, the role that that had. Right. So I had a great clinician who helped me, um, Dr. Amy Rouch. I'm just going to say that because she was she did a great job. And I, and I think she's a wonderful person. I have uh, referred many people to her. So I, I'm going to be fully transparent here. Um, so I was really searching for a black clinician because I know that there's a lot of things that is not present in the data, in the research, because we're just not uh, represented in that data and represented in the research as participants. And so black folks who are neurodivergent mask, just like everyone else, but we're also code switching and trying to, you know, um, assimilate to varying degrees into society. So what I have been noticing is that black folks who are neurodivergent, like our level of masking is ridiculous. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, um, I'll talk about that later. So I really wanted to have a black clinician who could understand that, who could see through some of those things, who could understand the racism piece. I don't have to explain everything, but there's just not a lot of us out here, right? And so the ones that are tend to be booked up or it's a really long wait because, you know, there's not a lot of us out here, right? Um, and a lot of other reasons that go into that too, which I can get into a later point. So I ended up getting this uh, Dr. Amy Rouch, who's a white woman, and you know I was like, okay, that's fine, right? I have my my primary physical like medical care practitioner is a white woman. She's absolutely fantastic. Like, she, but she listens to me. Like, she lets me talk and takes me seriously. So when I was in that office, I was looking at the intake form, and there's some sometimes there's questions on intake forms that don't fully consider other people's backgrounds and you can't have like a perfect intake form. So if when there's questions about like familial medical history, 
that's hard for a lot of people, but it tends to be very hard for black Americans descended from African uh, enslaved Africans, right? Which I am, right? And so I actually know a lot more of my family history than the overwhelming majority of my black peers. I It is very rare that I ever meet anyone who knows as much about their family history who who is descended from enslaved Africans. If they're from a country in Africa or they're from the islands, they tend to know a lot more about their history and their culture and their identity. But for us, it's different, right? So I had mentioned this question to her and that was, you know, on the side, it's kind of a litmus test. Like, are you going to react negatively? Are you going to receive this? Are you just going to brush it off? She received it and she listened to it and asked the question so she could understand. And so immediately that told me, you are a actual uh, culturally competent practitioner. Like you, you are understanding that there's things you don't know. There's things that your clients know that you don't. We all have gaps in our, in our awareness. I really appreciated that. So I go, she did a very thorough assessment. It like did multiple different diagnostic tools and some other stuff. And we compiled into this like 20 plus page assessment. It was, she did a fantastic job. It was really good. And when we're processing it at the end, you know, I like to talk, I like to run my mouth. And so, as you have noticed, and so we get into some conversations and she says, you know, Wes, you, you, you've been through a lot. And you know what? I, um, I never had anyone say that to me. And it took this, I don't know her background. I'm making an assumption, but she, I'm making a very stereotypical judgment, which I would not want people to make of me, but she seems to be a very like kind of stereotypical white woman, right? <laughs> she looks like I might, she might be at a Taylor Swift concert. That is not a disrespect <laughs> thing. It just, that's just how I felt. But like, it was like, okay, right. Probably, you know, enjoys pumpkin spice lattes. So I was like, it took someone with that experience to look at my life and like, oh my gosh, this person's been through a lot because all of my friends, regardless of race, including my white friends, I have like, the godfather of my kids is a white guy. I've been friends with since fourth grade, right? So I, I have very diverse friend group. All my friends, almost all my friends, almost 100% of my friends, in my opinion, grew up a lot harder than I did. Like they didn't have both their parents or they were really poor or they were a first generation college student and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, my parents have been broke. You know, we've lived in some apartments and some family homes until, you know, my parents started making money. But, you know, my parents make a lot of money. <laughs> so and like by the time I was 15, they were making a lot of money. And like, you know, they were college educated and there was things I was exposed to. Like I... I had a lot of advantages and privileges. And so I that is something that I center. But at the same time, I have also been through a lot. And so it took this person who had a very different... And, and honestly, this is a great message to anyone who um, is... Uh, I'm going to say specifically white and wants to be a clinician. Because, you know, think about the US, like the demographics, there's just... It's like 67 plus percent white. So it's you know, there's like 240 plus million of the population that's just white. Like black folks, we're like less than 60 million people. There's just number wise, we're just not a lot. So part of the progress, progress that we need to, the majority of the progress we need to see, the overwhelming bulk of the majority in the U.S. to be a more empathetic and caring country has to come from white folks. It, it just does because of the numbers. This I can go into all the history too, but even if you want to, even if you don't want to take, if you want to take that off the table, just the sheer numbers of it, it has to come from white folks. So this white practitioner 
takes her job seriously and did what she was supposed to do and was able to connect with a person of a different gender and a different racial background, right? And was able to connect and like help me to see some things. And then she did a thorough assessment. And there was things in that assessment that I didn't know. <laughs> and that, that, that power, that was, the, that was part of that power. Like, oh, I've kind of known that I'm smart, but, and I don't like buy into intelligence assessments that much, but I, oh, I scored in like the 98th percentile on this. Okay. And I am really smart in that area. That's a strength for me in that area. I like to think about because intelligence is a very, very, very broad concept. You can't, IQ test is a sliver of intelligence. That's just one lane of intelligence. And so, um, that was meaningful, but also I had this tool that gave me leverage. Like I registered with my disability resource office because uh, at the, uh, the school where I'm getting my PhD at, I was like, you know, I, I had a situation where I needed that leverage to be able to say, no, if, if we're going to do any kind of testing, I need accommodations because you're trying to put these arbitrary time frames around stuff. And that's not how the real world works. I am. Uh, sometimes it does, but not to the extent that they try to make it like in school. So it became powerful in terms of I had a tool, I had a weapon, I had something that could give me leverage that could help to give me support and resources that I need. I also, you know, because I had a thorough um, uh, practitioner, that uh, assessment itself was really well done and it gave me just a lot of insight into the operation of my brain, my strengths and weaknesses. And it was deeper than I thought. And I'm a licensed clinician. So if it was like that for me, it's going to be even more so for other folks, right? Now, I might have been a little bit more well positioned to handle some of that information because I, you know, I knew what I was looking at and like, you know, you know, I'm neurodivergent, so I have a spiky profile. So my weaknesses were low. I'm not offended by that. You know, I, I, I'm not like concerned. Some folks can get concerned when they see those things, right? And so that was some of the power there. But then also in just the the other interpersonal fact of this white clinician was able to be a, a wonderfully culturally competent counselor and see me and recognize me and give me a level of affirmation that I, I've never had. And that, and all of that was really powerful and meaningful for me. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Simon Baron Cohen and his, the 10 K spectrum research, right? Um, they are trying to target and target is the right word, the specific autism gene, um, when that comes out, you think it won't be particularly accurate in terms of autism de detection? I mean, okay, we, we, it, it, it'll have some level of accuracy, right? Like the one drop rule wasn't completely inaccurate. You definitely <laughs> captured a lot of Black people with the one drop rule, right? But you also captured people that we wouldn't socially classify as black right um so it's so yes that whole uh, the i don't even the simon, simon baron cohen thing the whole 10k spectrum thing it's uh it'll definitely pick up a lot of autistic folks but it's gonna pick up because we don't because what we think autism is is not is definitely not fully what it is i mean there's so little that we know right it's going it's, it's, it's to go over. It's not going to go under. It's not going to be like this cautious tool, right? It's going to be like the one drop rule where like, yeah, it's capturing all these folks, but now it's got like indigenous, you know, Native Americans in here too who definitely aren't black, right? And so it's going to have all this other stuff. So that it, 
here, here's what I think about when I think about that. There was a study a few years ago that was trying to look at the level of uh, comorbidity, like co-occurrence of uh, certain neurological conditions. And it was looking at this in children. It was a somewhat diverse sample. A lot, this is the other issue with a lot of research. And even some of the really cool neurodiversity research, it's like overwhelmingly white. It's not even like statistically representative of the US or whatever country. It's just like white, it's like 80%, 90% white. So this one was a little bit closer to having some so a, a better level of diversity in it, but it was looking at kids. And 50 per, all of the kids in the study were autistic. I forget like the age range, but they were younger than 10, right? And 50% of the children all had four other diagnoses, like known diagnoses, right? In addition to autism, right? 90% had two. So there is, and those are just known, and they're kids, right? They're going to be older. There's going to be other things, right? And so that is incredibly remarkable. Like, we don't see that in anything else. We see that in neurodivergence. And I like to think about it as the big three, not to say that other things aren't as important. I just, I always see autism, dyslexia, and ADHD in the mix. Where there is dyspraxia, there is one of those three. Where there is uh, Tourette's and tics, there is also one of those three. It just always kinds of, when I'm seeing this, as I'm going through the data, I haven't like put it in a you know data set and like run any statistical analysis on this. It just seems like this as I read through the data over the years. Those are the three that always pop up. So what, what I'm saying here is there is this um, remarkable level of co-occurrence within neurodivergence that we don't see uh, along the spectrum of any other like mental health conditions. So if you're going to create something that is going to uh, single out, right, a certain group of neurodivergent folks, it's going to be a huge net. You're going to be like a commercial uh, fishing it's boat. Trawler. Where like, yeah, you got some tuna in there, but you also have some mahi-mahi and some dolphins. And oh my gosh, you even caught a baby whale. You know, so it's <laughs> going to be like that. That's what, that's, the, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. This is not on. Uh, this is not on the question list. <laughs> I told no, you. No, it's not. But there's there's more things to talk about. Like I, I am not that person. I can talk for days. This it's not a good and thing. We haven't, not, even, we haven't even gotten to the questions yet. But I just want to reemphasize one thing, just because I don't think it's said enough that, with regards to the the genetics, that you can have much more in common with a white woman than with another black man genetically, right? And mm -hmm. that's something that I wish we could teach in school. Well, no, I guess we're not allowed to teach it in schools anymore. Right, these right. days. Right. Um, it's white kids but, everywhere are uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Heaven yeah. forbid. So how did you end up in counseling? What was your path towards when, when you were in, so when I was 12, I was convinced that I wanted to be a, uh, a judge. This was in, in oh, France. Wow. So, uh, there's, they have specialized judges for kids and uh, for us. And this is something, listen, I've got a, a lot of gripes against France, but the judicial system makes so much more sense. Judges aren't elected. They're trained. Wow. They go through law school. They go through judge school. So I wanted to be a, a judge for, for kids. Then I realized I, I just do not have the moral courage 
uh, to see mm-hmm. what I would need to see as a yeah. as a children's judge. And so I decided that I wanted to uh, become a lawyer. And uh, I did become a lawyer, um, except that I realized that the practice of law has so little in common with the actual study. And I love the study of law. You know, staying up until 3 a.m. to discuss a moot point of doctrine, bring it on. And then I discovered the practice, which had nothing in common. So I ended up in a very different role. And none of my, this is France, it's different, but I've got three master's degrees in law of which I use not a one today. So where I ended up so different from my study, how the hell did you end up in counseling? Kind of similar, but uh, but kind of not. Um I never knew what I wanted to do. Uh, to put some parallel here, when I was 12, I was still convinced that somehow, some way, I was going to have a uh, rogue accident that would give me superpowers and I would become like Spider-Man or Incredible Hulk. That's not that's not hyperbole. I'm not I'm not joking. Like this this is this is seriously what I thought. Like I like I mean I was smart, but I'm also I'm, I'm super creative. I love sci-fi. I love comics, and I'm like you know maybe something like this can happen. Maybe it won't be on that level, but like something can happen. Crazier things can happen, right? And so I didn't really put a lot of thought into it, and I didn't have as many opportunities for career exploration as I wanted. And, and then there was this other piece of you know hindsight me being young black man, uh, young black boy, me being neurodivergent and just all these issues I had in school, right? So basically, oh man, that's such a long story. I'm I'm gonna try to keep it a little bit more concise. So I entered another career field, right? Like I barely made it into undergrad. I barely made it out of undergrad. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of degree related work experience um, undergrad, just like, you know, bachelor's degree in the U.S. too. I forgot about that. So, um, you know, I barely made it out. I had uh, like a 2.2 GPA, which is pretty low in the U.S. Uh, in undergrad, but it wasn't because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I get dinged all the time because I turn things in late or I forgot about an assignment. But anytime I turn something in, especially if it was anything I had to write, I did really well on it. I just, you know, didn't do all the things. <laughs> so, um, There was that. Uh, So I ended up entering a business to business sales career for about like the first uh, eight, 10 years or so of my adult professional full time career. And I learned a lot in that field. The interesting thing is a lot of the trainings that you would go to with different organizations where they're trying to train these business to business sales executives, um, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much the belly of the beast. It is the most patriarchal the most capitalistic the most white supremacist system that like you can be in like other than policing <laughs> like it's pretty it's it's that's a whole nother conversation but it's it's uh it's what so that was another realization that was going on for me during that time but these trainings they were really just taking psychological theory and counseling theory and teaching it to salespeople because those are communication skills. Those are interpersonal skills. It wasn't until I got out of that career and into grad school when I was taking counseling classes when I started learning these theories. And I was like, that's transactional analysis. I was at this sales institute that was trying to teach me. They didn't call it transactional analysis. They called it the, you know, the so-and-so, you know, sales method. And I was like, this is like one, I'm pretty sure that was uh, copyright infringement, but they just took, took this 
theory. They took transactional analysis and they were trying to teach it to us. So the skill set between a business to business sales professional and a counselor are actually very similar is what I'm saying. Fascinating. And from me, I was like, as a consultant, I wasn't coming here. Like sales gets a bad rep. Everyone is in sales, right? Yeah. You approached me to be on this podcast. That was a sales pitch. Like everyone is in sales. Like we have to recognize that, right? But there is a bad way to do it. And there is a professional way to do it, right? And professionalism is a very loaded term, but there, um, there's a way to do it that is, um, I would say more humanistic, I should say. That's a better, that's a better way to say it. So, um, you know, if I was talking to a client and it didn't make sense, I'm not going to try to force it, right? If I have a client where I'm like, man, this actually, the solution that we have could actually really work really well. I'm, I'm going to, you know, try to be honest about it. I will be honest about it. So it's the same thing in the, in the counseling practice. I was really unhappy in the sales world. I um, finished undergrad in 2005 in December and I started my first like full-time gig in September, 2006, right? I actually started doing really well. And like, um, I, 2007 is like one of my best years financially. And it was like my first full year as an in, employed person. It was also before like the 2008 housing recession in the US, which was the biggest recession that we've had. Um, and the only it's thing that was bigger was the Great Depression. So yeah. I had bought a condo in 2007, Halloween day, October 31st. I thought I'm doing amazing. I'm like, I barely graduated from undergrad. I'm in this sales ground. I'm doing this. I bought this condo. Is it Virginia Beach? Uh, Virginia is like 20 miles from the ocean front. It's a two-story condo. Blah, blah. I taught the person down $10,000. I'm on top of the world. Blah, 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 blah. And then in December, I took a trip to India to go see my homeboy get married to my homegirl. Uh, they were, it was my college roommate. He was a master's student. I was an undergrad. And him and his uh, 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 grad school boo uh, went back to India and got married. And I got to go to India for two weeks and see the wedding. It was amazing. So ah, and I spent a very ADHD amount of money. <laughs> I frame it like that because it was just, I'm in my 20s. I'm making some money. I just bought a house. I'm in another country. Also, I'm in a country where everyone is my complexion. I had never experienced that before. It was very empowering. I spent way too much money, but I would do it again. And so my mentality was, I'll come back to the States. I'm doing great. I'll make it all back. And then I come back. This was in December. I come back in January and the housing market crashes. My cost of living has gone up $1,000 and my income has gone down, this income I was expecting to make. Um, and I'm a black man who, it's so like the statistics for like the pay gap is horrible for black men. Like we, it, it is very real for women. The gender equity pay gap is very real. I will say that sometimes we miss some of the nuances in that conversation because every demographic of women other than black women and Latina women get paid more than black men <laughs> on average. Like that's what these studies show. But we get left out of that conversation a lot because people just think, man, but I'm not a man that happens to be black. I'm a black man. It means something very different, right? And so it took me a very long time to climb my way out of this like financial hold of this recession it caused. That's a very long conversation, but I knew that I wanted to get into another career field. I knew that I wanted to figure out how to go to grad school, but I did so horrible in undergrad and yada, yada, yada. Ended up moving back to North Carolina. My um, undergrad uh, uh, sweetheart, the wonderful woman who took a gamble to decide that she would marry me, which I am very fortunate for, uh, is also an attorney. 
uh, and a black woman. And we have very different backgrounds and she has uh, helped to humble me and show me more about life uh, um, uh, consistently. So we moved back to North Carolina because she has always made more money than me. I mean, she was in law school. I was barely figuring it out, all this other stuff. And I ended up running into a person who was my former, one of my former professors in undergrad. Um, what I didn't know is that they were getting their PhD at that point. They hadn't officially had it. But now when I ran back into them, they did. And they were working at an HBCU, which is a historically black mm -hmm. college university right here in Durham, North Carolina, right down the road. And they were like, well, hey, you're looking at these other careers. I didn't know what counseling was, to be honest with you. I didn't know the difference between psychiatrists, psychologists, um, licensed clinical social workers. Yeah, mm -hmm. or in therapists. I didn't know the difference between those things. Like I knew a little bit about therapy and stuff. You know, I was in my like late 20s. But counseling kept popping up on all these career assessments I was doing, huh. right? And I actually... I was trying to figure out like what I was going to do. I was like, I could do grad school. All my friends around me all have graduate degrees and they all tell me I'm smart. So I'm going to do this. So you know what I actually did? There's like Princeton Review and there's Kaplan and you can take like free assessments or like free versions of old versions of the entry exams. I took the LSAT, I took the GMAT and I took the GRE. And I said, whichever one I do better on, that's what I'm going to apply to. I actually did like freakishly well on the LSAT. <laughs> like I was like, I think my brain naturally thinks like that. But yeah. I saw my wife go through a tier one law school when we were dating. And I was like, this is miserable. And the majority of this field is miserable. I want nothing to do with the, the law, right? Which I think you can, even though, you know, Francie was still, it's still the law, right? So I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want this. And like I did absolutely miserable on like the the GMAT, the business school one. There was a lot of math. I'm good at math, but I'm slow at man. It takes me like I it, that's when like my processing speed really comes out. The slower processing speed comes out. So I did, you know, I did pretty well on a GRE. I didn't do like amazing. I'm not a great standardized test taker because, you know, racism. But anyway, uh so conversation. Um, so I was like, you know, I'll do that, but I didn't know what kind of program. So here's my friend saying, oh, you can just take these special student classes where they'll let you take up to three classes in a program. And if you do well and you like it, you can officially apply to the program and those classes can count to your degree. So I did it and I loved it. And I was like, this is amazing. This is this is my language. I, oh, I never I felt so I had never enjoyed school that much since I was like in kindergarten through third grade which is before this like big like incident happened racialized incident ha racist incident happened in my life it kind of severed everything but like it was just wonderful and that's that's how I got into it but there was you know there was other exposure I had some friends who were therapists my mom is just in a has just done an amazing job working on herself my dad to a, a degree in, in comparison to other men his age I think he probably has done a pretty good job I give him a hard time because I'm a you know, I'm a, I'm a old millennial, so you know we just, we're just a little different culturally. But yeah, he's he's a good guy. I love him. Um, but yeah, so all of those things together, and there's you know a lot more there. But that's that's kind of what pushed me into the field of counseling. Okay, so try to actually get back to the questions. <clears throat> so, how has your own perspective and your background influenced your approach to supporting neurodiverse individuals in counseling? Whew, that's a, a a really good one. So. There's actually a really good book that I just read by another black 
um, counselor educator. Counselor educator is a term for someone who has a PhD in counseling and trains other counselors. Uh, Dr. Uh, Latanya Summers. Um, I just wrote a review for the book, actually, and put it on LinkedIn. The book is called Black Again by Dr. Latanya Summers. It, it's on, it's in print and on Audible. I, um, so like one thing is understanding my dyslexia. I have listened to audiobooks since about mm -hmm. 2011. I've had a subscription to Audible. This is before I realized I was dyslexic. It was very clear, but I've always enjoyed reading, but reading is very hard for me unless it's like a comic or a graphic novel. And so I just like discovered audiobooks in 2011 and I, you know, read anywhere from like 13, to like 20 books a year because I get to listen to them. Right. And so um, this is one way that I think about this is, you know, the different ways that people receive information. Right. So like when I'm working with clients, I'm communicating with clients, I'm setting things up logistically. If I'm there's a component to counseling, it's like psychoeducation. Right. How am I talking about counseling when I'm going out? I'm thinking about like the different ways that people interact. Right. And I'm also realizing that us neurodivergent folks have a hard time with the the inconsistencies of society, the cognitive dissonance of society, the fact that we're all just supposed to agree that there's this whole side of life that we don't want to acknowledge publicly and we have to pretend like it doesn't exist when we see each other. Like, it's that's very weird to me, right? So I, yeah, I have two master's degrees. I have two licenses. Uh, I have two certifications. I'm getting a PhD, but I, I, I make an intentional point to be an everyday person, right? So, so people can hear my language is informal, but people can hear that I can talk about something really complex and I can talk about, you know, comics, which can be very complex, or, you know, talk about other like, we, we can have fun. Pumpkin spice lattes. Pumpkin spice latte. We can have fun. We can laugh. I can admit that I'm so this is one of the ways. It's like integrating all of these areas of life that we say. We can't talk about that. We can't do that. Because I'm this, I have to sound like this. And I have to talk in a very concise manner and a very authoritative voice. Like, I don't, I'm not doing that, right? Like, I'm going to be loud. I might go on rambles. I might talk really fast. I might be really quiet. I might talk in a really high-pitched voice sometimes when I get really excited. Like, I'm just going to let myself be my full, authentic, neurodivergent Black self. But that also requires a lot of consistent reflection for me, which means taking time out because I'm unpacking these layers that have been suppressed. It's not just the, um, the suppression of ableism, right? But there's the suppression of racism. And there's a very weird experience as, um, you know, a black man, because I have this identity of privilege, as a man, but I'm black. And so some of these things in a patriarchal culture like the US and pretty much everywhere in the world, um, some of these things that are seen as strengths, which you know, I'm not saying this as like I, I advocate for these things. I'm just talking about that they exist. Like in male culture, it's like, you know, the bigger and stronger you are, the better, right? You're respected by men. You're feared by men. But if you're a black man and you're big and you're strong, you're a threat, Right. You're going to get shot by the cops. If I put my hands in my pockets, I was scared. What I was scared what he's going to do. Right. So it actually becomes a weakness. Right. And so you think about like the way that um, black um, different black people experience racism. Right. So 
patriarchy tells women that you're not a threat, you're not important, you're weak, you're not as smart as us. We know that is a complete bogus, you know, science. It is not science at all, right? It is complete fabrication. That's what patriarchy says. So it allows women, this is not a benefit, this is horrible, right? But it allows women to fly under the radar because patriarchal dudes aren't paying attention to them, right? Yeah. And you give women, an op- you give any human, right? But you give women an opportunity to do their thing, they're going to do their thing. You give black women a chance to do their thing. I think we all know they're going to do their thing, right? And so, but for black men, what happens is all of these strengths that we have, we become a target, right? And so we have to operate in this really weird way where it's like, you know, you you end up, you can't not assimilate to a certain degree and be in the U.S. And then as you get older and you start, uh, for me, as I start achieving and accomplishing more bits of professionalism or like credentials, whatever the heck you want to call it, experience, it gives me like a little bit more autonomy to be myself and to unpack a layer that I haven't processed, right? And so I know that my clients are doing that too. So, you know, for instance, I have plenty of clients who are young black men and a lot of them are neurodivergent, whether they know it or not. And they have this issue where they're trying to tell me, well, yeah, you know, I'm trying to sound better when I talk. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with the way you talk? In their head, they don't sound proper, right? And so what I, one of the things that I do for them is I think about examples because it's not just enough for me to ask them questions and to get them thinking about it. It's not just enough for me to encourage them that it's fine. It's not just enough for me to model it in my own behavior, right? I'm showing all these different ways people receive information, but I'm also going to show you a video of uh, the director, Ryan Coogler, who made the Black Panther films and the uh, Apollo films with uh, Michael B. Jordan, right? He does not code switch at all. You hear that brother? He a brother from Compton. He sound like it. I ain't going to try to do that accent because I'm going to sound horrible, but he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant and he doesn't code switch, right? Every other country, we understand that there's multiple dialects. We understand that in India, there's all these different dialects of Hindi. We understand in China, there's all these different dialects of Chinese. There's Mandarin, there's Cantonese, there's all those different things. But in the U.S., we try to act like there's only one version of English. No, there's multiple dialects of English. And so black vernacular, African-American vernacular is a dialect of English. But we get told that's bad and that's wrong. No, my clients, when you come to me, if that... If that's how you want to talk, that's how you want to talk. And and and, and that's good. And I'm going to explain to you why that's good. And I'm going to help you process what that means for you that it's good and the times in your life where you've been told that it's not. And if you're one of my consulting clients, because I do a lot of consulting work around issues of mental health and neurodivergence and race, then I'm going to do a training workshop where I'm going to work with your leaders and we're going to, we're going to work on those same concepts. It's a metacognition, thinking about thinking. Right. We need to spend more time to slowing down and thinking about why we think certain things. What do we really process in certain certain situations? But capitalism keeps us going and going and going and going. So we don't spend time thinking. This episode had so much content, we decided to split it in two. That's it for part one. Part two will come out next month. In the meantime, you can learn more about Wesley Wade by following him on LinkedIn And remember to follow TAP on LinkedIn as well for new episodes. That's it from the Autistic Advantage podcast. Our team includes production director Harvey Range, audio editor Brandon Williams, community director Ben Van Hook, creative director Kaya Williams, and I'm your host, Olivia Fox. See you next time.